Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue in a series we started last week looking at the seven letters that Jesus dictated, the Apostle John penned in the book of Revelation. These letters are very similar in format to any of the epistles you would read, any letters that you would read in other parts of the New Testament, and yet they are included here as part of the revelation of Jesus for the sake of the church to give us instruction, to give us correction, to give us encouragement, and to point us to our hope. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he might speak to us. Father, as we come and commit this time to the study of your word, I pray more than pouring our minds and our attention to this, we would be a people who listen for your voice. For every word is spoken by your spirit. This particularly as Jesus dictates these words to be given to his church, to his people. Lord, may we hear your voice speaking to us. For all of our intellectual capacity, all of our diligence and study are not enough to understand what you would have us to understand. We may know the words and learn principles, but only as your spirit is at work within us can we have the word applied to us correctly, to bring encouragement where we need courage, to bring correction where we are off course. Lord, may your spirit speak to us that you would produce in us righteousness, right faith, right lives. We ask this with the great assurance because you've told us that your word never comes empty, that it never comes back fruitless. But as your word dwells within the hearts and the minds of your people, it not only informs us, but it forms our very lives. Lord, bless us with your voice now. In these moments, we pray for your glory and for the joy that is ours in Christ. Kindle it within us. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is the word incarnated. Amen. We'll begin our reading this morning in verse 8. So this is, again, the second letter that we read this to the church in Smyrna. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but really you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. I want to begin this morning with a confession. I have a personal aversion to suffering. I prefer prosperity to persecution. I enjoy 72 degree days much more than minus two freezers or 102 scorchers. And given my choice, I would much rather go to the beach than go through an IRS audit. 
These are just certain ways that I would prefer to just be comfortable and to avoid any discomfort and certainly any kind of suffering at all. But because that's my mindset, the letter that is written to the church in Smyrna makes me somewhat uncomfortable. Because as we look at all of these letters as Jesus is speaking to the seven churches in Asia Minor and in present-day Turkey, the church in Smyrna is one of only two churches to receive no correction whatsoever. In fact, they are commended, only commended within this and encouraged through this letter. And what they are commended for and encouraged to do, they're commended for suffering and encouraged to continue to endure. They're actually commended for the very thing that I am inclined to avoid in my life that I would prefer to avoid and want to avoid in every aspect of my life. And that makes me very uncomfortable, hearing commendation for something that I don't want to do. Now, as we consider the church in Smyrna, we need to know a little bit about it. The church in Smyrna, Smyrna literally means the city of myrrh. Myrrh is probably familiar to most of you if you've sang Christmas hymns or been in church at any time in your life. Myrrh is a, was a, a, uh, an herb that grew on a bush and had berries. The berries were collected and when crushed, it would emit a fragrant aroma. It was used as a perfume. It was used also as a burial ointment. It was a very powerful and very strong odor, but it was a pleasant and a fragrant aroma. And so this was a city that was named after that herb that was apparently prevalent in, in that area, but it was also appropriate for this particular city because of some of the experiences that they had had throughout their time. Smyrna had had a long history. In fact, they were known as first in Asia. Now, in one sense, they were not first like we might think of first. The people talk about first city. Uh, Chicago calls themselves second city, giving first city, I guess, to New York because that's the largest, most powerful, most influential. When we hear about first in Asia, it would not be the way that we tend to think of it uh, because Smyrna was not the largest city. Ephesus was by far the largest city. Smyrna wasn't even the second largest city in that region in the world. But they were first and declared themselves to be first because they were first. They were there before anyone else. And so for those of us here in Williamsburg, we can kind of understand that mindset. There are bigger cities all around the state and even around the country, but we were here first. They were also saying that they were first in Asia because of their beauty. It was a city that had, uh, was, had uh, natural uh, resources uh, around it and, and built into that was a beautiful city, a city that had once been, had been totally uh, burned to the ground and yet in about 200 B.C. was raised up again by Alexander the Great. And he decided before he rebuilt the city that the city was going to be a, a testimony to his greatness. And so blending in with the beauty of the scenery around it, he decided that all of the architecture should be world class. And so when people came into the city, they would have a wow factor of just what a great setting this place was. And so they declared themselves to be the first in Asia. The city also has an interesting history, at least in contemporary day, because it's interesting that this church is the only church of the seven that were written to in the New Testament that actually still exists today. Smyrna is now in present-day Izmir, Turkey, which is in the middle of Islamic territory. But to this day, the church continues to stand, and the Muslims in that area have just finally given up on them and just refer to the city that was once Smyrna as the, the city of infidels because they have continued, regardless of persecution and things that they have ex difficulties they've experienced, to remain faithful and to worship Jesus Christ and him alone. And the pressure is not something that is new to them since the development, since the uh, arrival and the, and the strength of, of the Islamic church. At the time that Jesus was writing to them, 
the emperor had risen and, and the cult of emperor worship was required by law. Christians who were followers of Jesus were saying they would not give themselves to worship anybody but God, the one true God. As a result, they found themselves in disfavor with the government and with the authorities, and they, received, they experienced persecution. In addition to the people who wanted them to worship the emperor, there were those who continued to claim to be Jewish, although as Jesus refers to them, they really were not Jewish. They held the traditions, but they were totally social-oriented. In other words, they liked the label, and they liked to be called Jews, but there was no substance to their faith. And because the Christians, as they grew, had a substance and a passion and were embodying everything that the, the Jews had stood for, they started experiencing rejection from them, persecution, slander. And those who were, as Jesus referred to, they claimed to be Jews, that were not really Jews, they, they said things in order to continue to bring down the reputation of the followers of Christ. Things like about hearing about the celebration of the Lord's Supper and honoring and remembering what Jesus has done for us, they, they started sh telling that the people around the countryside that these Christians, these followers of that Christ are, are cannibals. They go and eat, eat flesh and they, they drink blood trying to disgust everybody about the practices of Christianity. They claimed that these were uh, uh, people who were anti, anti the culture around them because they would not embrace what everybody else was embracing. And so they were experiencing persecution and rejection. And just to, in general, people just disliked them, distrusted them, and thought of them as, as particularly strange. And this is the church to which Jesus is writing, and they were about to experience even more overt persecution, as Jesus is referring to in this letter, when he says, don't be afraid of what you are about to experience. Now, the first thing that I'm going to do when somebody writes me a note and says, don't be afraid about what you're going to experience, is to be afraid of what I might be experiencing and wonder what it is. But I also don't need a letter, because I find my life very often is characterized by fear. Even when things are going very well, it dawns on me at some point, it can't keep up. What's going to come? And if I'm already in the midst of experiencing misery, well, then I don't have to look far. I don't know if I'm alone in that mindset. And some of you are perhaps racked with fear, maybe irrational fear, as sometimes I find myself. Others of you don't have to look far because you have or you are experiencing hardship, difficulty, and suffering. But when we look at this letter, Jesus is writing to you. And he's writing to you who have it pretty much all together. You have a right perspective. You, you understand that there's not a reason to be fe uh, fearful. God has blessed you, and you're not really experiencing any suffering in one way or another. And the reason I say that he's writing to you as well is because one day you will. It's not what I wish for you, but that's just the reality of life. And as we look at this letter, there's a few things that are important for us to grab uh, uh, our minds around or actually allow to penetrate into our minds and that it can shape our understanding of the world, of our faith, of our God, and our place in it. And just simply to give us an understanding of how life actually functions, because this is a very real and a very raw and a very important practical letter that Jesus is giving to us through the Apostle John. And the first thing that I think that we need to take note of, and if we got nothing else today, this is an important corrective, an important thing for us to get, is that we need to understand that the general tone of what Jesus is saying here, the message of what he's declaring, 
is that suffering is just a part of life. Suffering is even a part of a faithful life. It is part of the life of those who are believers. That is an important lesson because it flies in the face of a very popular teaching that permeates our culture, our church culture, and our churches. Some time ago, a friend of mine had stayed home from church one Sunday, and I guess he was watching TV, and he posted on Facebook a message. Now, I assume he was sick, since he was the pastor of his church and probably would have been missed. But he posted on Facebook just a very simple message. Wow. I now understand why we are increasingly a post-Christian culture. Just wow is all he put on there. He had been watching some of the television preachers, television evangelists, with prominent names, messages, television shows, whole organizations and what they are proclaiming. And I don't know who it was that he was watching. It'd be difficult to narrow down. Because an overwhelming number of those with national and international television ministries teach a form of a message that is known simply as a prosperity gospel. The basis of the prosperity gospel is this. They teach the basic premises is that God wants everyone who is a Christian, everyone who, who he loves, to be healthy and prosperous. They teach that if you are experiencing difficulty in your life, it is a because of some consequence of sin in your life. Now, sometimes that is true, but it is not a universal principle to be taught as a fundamental doctrine. Sometimes people suffer simply because in life we suffer. And they believe and they, they teach that if you are prospering, then that is a sign of God's blessing. And sometimes that is true. Some of you have been prospered. God has endowed you with tremendous gifts and tremendous opportunities, and you have worked hard and have been fruitful and successful and have prospered. And God has endowed you with that. Some others, whether here or elsewhere, have also prospered largely through the same traits, although some just inherited the prosperity. And you have been seduced. And your whole perspective on life has been warped. And that is not a blessing from God. The, the teaching of the prosperity gospel, based on those primary fundamental planks, teaches, belie teaches believers that this is how you ought to view your life. It comes in a number of different forms. There is the, the old, I'll say classic, although it's really only been around for a relative short time, 50, 60 years, is the, just the health and wealth. Uh, just there is no sugarcoating it whatsoever that they, they would tell you, you should be healthy. If you, if you are sick, then you are in sin. If you are not wealthy, it's because you don't believe or because you don't give money to their ministry. It's not something I haven't figured that out exactly yet. But those are, the, I mean, they're, they're very direct in that. Some come across, and they're not as crass, but they teach over and over a message that the whole purpose in life is for you to be happy in the moment. And the way for you to be happy is to think positively. Look on the bright side. And then some are a hybrid of, of the both. I won't give names. There's any number of names, but the one who comes to mind is a hybrid, uh, is in Houston and smiles a whole lot and tells bad jokes. But uh, if you don't know who I'm referring to, well, good for you. It means you haven't, been, haven't watched him on TV. But he's not alone. 
and as nice and as kind and as encouraging as these people are, and the fact that sometimes that there are nuggets that are important, the whole message is, is really contrary to what the Scripture teaches, and it's exposed by... When the guy comes at you with the gun, I know it's pre-guns, just think that the gun won't go off. That'll fix the whole problem. But Jesus is commending these people. And he has no words of correction for them at all, which makes no sense if the message and the promise of the gospel is that in this life you will be healthy and wealthy. Think about the Apostle Paul and even the calling on his life. When Paul was converted, he had a tremendous experience. Uh, God appeared to him. He was made blind at first, and then he was sent to a, a man named Ananias who had heard of Paul's ways before, persecuting the believers. He was a modern-day, he was a, a, a terrorist of his own day. And Ananias, the man he was sent to, was a little skeptical, and the Lord came and spoke to Ananias and said, Ananias, don't be afraid. I have called this man, and I will show him what it means to suffer for my name. The most effective missionary in the history of man. The most profound theologian to help us to understand what God has done for us in the gift of Jesus Christ. And the calling on his life was to suffer. How can that be if the purpose of life is only to be healthy, and only to be prosper, and to be carefree. Even Paul's attitude is, is reflected uh, in, as he teaches, and he's writing from a jail cell, having been unjustly arrested, writing to believers in, in Philippi. And he says to them, look, I want you to know this, that what has happened to me has actually served for the advancement of the gospel. In other words, even when injustice and suffering is taking place, God is at work through it. And Paul is willingly giving his life to suffer for the sake of the gospel and saying that even in the suffering, there is fruit that is coming from this. It, it makes no sense. Think of Stephen, for those of you who are Bible students, and the man who was one of the original deacons who was called, who was a gifted uh, teacher and evangelist, who was arrested because he was a gifted teacher and evangelist. And as he's standing before the religious authorities and, 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 and get asked to give testimony, he just praises God. And as a consequence of being faithful and praising God, not only had been arrested and go through a monkey court trial, they stoned him to death. Interestingly enough, Apostle Paul, we're told, you see at the end of that scene, standing on the side, having orchestrated the whole thing. Stephen, who was faithful, suffered. Think of Jesus, his life, and his teaching. The sufferings of his life and how he responds to it for those who would follow him. In Matthew 10, 38, he says this, if you're going to follow me, you'll take up your cross. 
That doesn't mean pick up a block of wood. It doesn't mean simply enduring difficulty. It means that we are, um, that we are called to live our lives in such a way that we will experience hardship, rejection, even persecution because of our obedience and our following Christ. Jesus says in John 15, 20, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. In other words, those who are followers of Christ should ex expect at some point or another to be rejected and to experience hardship simply because we are followers of Christ. The whole idea that the purpose of the Christian life, the purpose of this life in Christ is to be happy and carefree seems to be a direct opposite of what Jesus is teaching. The logic of that theology seems to me to be this, believe more and be less like Jesus. I mean, if our sufferings are marks of following him, the absence of suffering means we can't be like him. In fact, I came to an understanding at a period in my life after I'd come through a number of difficulties and realized that while I wouldn't volunteer for any of them again, apart from suffering, there is no becoming like Christ. One is I realized that how I definitely don't want to embrace the sufferings. I just want it to end. I want it to be over with. I want the comfort. And then I think about what Jesus has done for me. He who left total comfort in paradise of heaven in order to come to this earth, which is beautiful and wonderful as it was originally created, had already fallen and experienced difficulties and hardship, rejection and pain, even crucifixion. He did that willingly. I want any inconvenience to end. Jesus says, I want to demonstrate my love for you even more than I want the sense of comfort at this point in time. And so if I never experience any discomfort, any suffering, then how can I be like Jesus who willingly embraced suffering? The fact that the Apostle Paul talks about him being made perfect in suffering. He was already perfect, but we recognized who he was because of his suffering. And Paul's mindset was that he wanted to experience sufferings like that as well. We need to be very clear that the letter to the, Smyr uh, the church in Smyrna reminds us that suffering is a part of life, even the Christian life, and that the presence of suffering is not a mark of a lack of faith. It is a sign of the depth of love for Christ when we are suffering for the sake of his name. Along with that, we have some other things that we need to understand that are of, of great practical importance for us. We need to understand that suffering is not senseless and purposeless, at least what they are experiencing here in, in, in Smyrna, though it may have seemed that way. The natural inclination for most of us when we are experiencing hardship, difficulty, persecution, or suffering is just to ask the question, why? And why is a good question. Suffering is bad enough on its own, but when it, there doesn't seem to be any sense to it, when there's no purpose in it, when it's just unjust, it, suffering is unsufferable. But what Jesus is saying to the church here, suffering isn't without purpose in the lives of believers. In verse 10, we see Jesus speaking to the believers and saying to them, do not be, fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and the word tested is significant for us. It says there is a purpose. You don't get tested except for to show something. Now, this is not a test of God saying, 
do you love me? And let me pour things out. But there is a purpose, there is a trial, very similar to those of you who are in military when you were going through your boot camp and training that you were tested, put in difficult circumstances. One, because through, coming through that, you were strengthened. And two, coming through that, you gained confidence because you endured, you came through something that you probably didn't imagine you could possibly endure. Well, in life we have other things that are not as acute and not as clearly defined, and somebody's not there to explain that, but we experience difficulties and hardships. These are tests, not tests to pass, fail, but they are tests in order to strengthen us and in order to reveal even to us that we are not what we once were. There is a purpose in the test, and it's not only found here, but even in the scriptures, the testimony over and over again. Let me give you three uh, prominent people that have testified to this very purpose. First, we'll go back to Paul in Romans 5. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit when he has given to us. It's telling us that we rejoice even in sufferings, not because sufferings are fun or enjoyable, but because they produce something in us, the character. There is the testing. The suffering is not senseless and purposelessness. purposeless. It is producing something in us. Paul's not alone in this. James more concisely says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. In other words, that which we want to be, that which we desire to be, is not going to happen except for experiencing and enduring and being remaining faithful through suffering. It has a work upon our lives. And Peter picks up as well. In this beautiful doxology, he declares, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls." All three of these men that God has raised up in their own lives and as their teaching for the church universal have declared that suffering is not without purpose, that our suffering and our difficulties and our hardship are shaping our lives, reminding us of our need of Christ, Christ becoming stronger in our lives, and they are bearing fruit around us, our testimony to other believers and even to the unbelievers who are around us. Some of you are experiencing suffering. You may wonder why. And I can't give you the specific causes for that. Some, if we talked about, I might be able to give some hints. Others, I have no idea. But this I do know, and this you need to know, is that regardless of the suffering and regardless of what causes the suffering, 
God is at work and is using that and will use that in your life to make you what you ultimately want to be. But along with that, we also need to understand not only is suffering not senseless and purposeless, purposeless, but our suffering, that while it continues to exist, we need to realize from what Jesus is saying here that Jesus' immediate objective is not to remove all of our suffering. Well, I tend to be focused on my present comfort. Jesus' focus is on my character and ultimate and eternal condition. And Jesus, as he's speaking to the people here and to us through them, he's telling us that suffering is not outside of his authority, what he is doing. By the very fact that he says, do not be afraid of what is going to happen to you, what you're going to experience. And then goes on and tells them what is going to happen, and then tells them that it's a test. Jesus is indicating that he's aware. It's not like Jesus is in on the plan, but he is aware of the plan. And he has a purpose in, the, in what is going to happen. But his awareness, his indicating and then his instruction all say that even in our suffering, it's not outside of the scope of his life and your life with him. And along with that understanding, Jesus says, look, I know. And when he says, I know, and he repeats that here, I know where you dwell. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I, know, I know your tribulation uh, and your poverty and the slander. Jesus is saying, I, I know what's going on in your life. I know your circumstances. I know what's going to happen, and I know what you will become. And Jesus is radically identifying with them in a way that we may not recognize in this sense. But if you compare part of the history of Smyrna that I mentioned a moment ago, and Jesus as he identifies himself in verse 8, when he says, I am the one who died and came to life. He's speaking to a city that had been dead and rose again, a church that had been oppressed and yet is to flourish. There is a connection that he is making with them. Jesus is saying, I know. I know you, I know your circumstances. And when he's saying I know, he's saying that in two senses. There's one sense that we need to understand what he's saying is, I, I see and I'm aware. And I care. I mean, you don't say I know to somebody, at least not in a, an encouraging way, unless you're saying I am aware and, and it, 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 it's, it's part of me. That's important for us to consider that, and reminded that suffering is not outside of God's control. A number of years ago when we lived in Chattanooga, across the street from the church where I had the opportunity to serve, we had an elementary school. And every spring at that elementary school, the fifth graders would go on a retreat up on a camp in Lookout Mountain. And they would be introduced to teachers, principals, and other students that, were, uh, that are in the middle school to help in their transition. And a year before we moved, I received a call when the camp was going on. They'd left on a, uh, on a uh, Monday. I got a call Tuesday morning asking if I would come over to the school. They'd had a tragedy. A young girl had died. And nobody even knew what had happened. She had no medical problem in her history. This was not an accident where she slipped and fell off the side of the mountain or anything else that uh, would normally come to mind if you're familiar with the terrain there. They were there in a meeting, and she had a seizure, a heart attack, and just died, 10 years old. 
It devastated the teachers and the whole community and the students. And so they asked for several pastors that were in the community to come over and be prepared to meet with the teachers and, and the students and to try to bring them comfort. And while we were gathering before school started, one of the other pastors, who was a wonderful guy and loves the Lord, has a fruitful ministry, trying to bring comfort to the situation and try to get us all on the same page, he, he said to the principal and to the guidance counselors and to uh, the rest of the other pastors, look, one of the things we need to make sure that these students understand is that this is not what God wanted to happen. And his whole desire was to bring comfort to the students and to make sure that they don't turn from God in anger because God, he knows that God is their only hope. But I sat there for a moment and I had a dilemma on my hands because this was not the time for a theological debate. But I felt compelled to speak because it wasn't just a matter of theological bullet points. It was a matter of life and hope and trust. And so I said, trying to be humble, but I'm not very good at that, uh, but trying to, I just said, I understand what you're trying to say. But if we give them that message, we are robbing them of future hope for the sake of present comfort. To tell them that something happens in their life that is outside of God's control. When they face difficulty in their own lives someday, they're going to assume our God can't do anything about it because our God is powerless against this. We need to help them understand we don't know why this has happened. But it is not outside of God's control. And Jesus is saying to them, I know what's happening. I am aware of what's happening. And when he's telling them it's for the purpose of the test, he's saying it's within my control. We may not understand the details, but we need to be a people who understand that even our suffering is in God's purview and will ultimately be for our good and for the advancement of the gospel, as Paul says. But when Jesus says, I know, he also means it in another way. He says, I know not merely that to say, you know, I, I'm aware. When he says, I know, he's saying, I understand. I've been there. I've done that. Have you ever been in a situation where you just felt the weight of the world on your shoulders? With a fear about what you were facing and what was to come next? And the people who are around you are very well-intended and you know they love you, but you just feel like nobody Nobody knows what you're feeling. And one friend or somebody you just God brings into your life that perhaps you hadn't even met before comes along and shares their own story. And automatically you have a connection because even if it's not explained, you know they understand. And you're not alone. And you feel encouraged because there's somebody to walk with you. Somebody that knows what you're going to experience. Jesus says to the church and he says to you and to me, I know. I had no place to lay my head. I was stripped. I was whipped. I was murdered. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're experiencing. That's important for us to understand as we relate to God. 
Because why a wide portion of our culture and influencing our churches leaves us in confusion. If we're experiencing suffering, we must be alienated from God. This message of the gospel screams out to us, I know, I understand. Come to me and I will walk with you. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. So let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive the mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, rather than those of you who are experiencing suffering, or those of you who will experience suffering, rather than being confused by the false teaching that is permeating our culture, one study that's come out recently, a book that's come out, an article I read in Christianity Today, says that even in, in the average evangelical culture, 17% of professing Christians are influenced in one way or another, believe some part of the prosperity gospel as part of their basis. And so it would be unrealistic for us to assume that we're not somehow influenced. And when we face struggles and, and difficulties, our natural inclination is to wonder why God is punishing us. What did we do? Are we alienated from God? And it makes us move away from God. The cry of the gospel is understand the God who has loved you, who loved you enough to endure what you are enduring in order that as, as the writer of Hebrews says at the end, we may approach the throne of grace with confidence. In other words, we don't have to worry about whether God is angry at us. He has loved us and he's experienced it. And he's saying, I know, I will walk through you. And the reason that's important is because we are inclined in the midst of our suffering, not to draw to God. We may cry out in prayer, but many of us shrink away from God until either the suffering goes away or we feel like we are better or good enough. In the midst of your suffering, Jesus says, I know I'm there with you. There's a purpose in it. But he doesn't remove it from us right now because he's concerned about what it is going to produce in us. It's not punishment. It's an opportunity to grow in grace and to go before God with great confidence because he has already shown you that he understands propelled by his love. The call in our lives, lastly, is this, is just simply to be faithful. That's what Jesus says. He says in this letter, as he tells them, look, this is what's going to happen to you. He tells them, don't be afraid. But in, in verse, um, like verse uh, 10, he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's interesting. We know from the prophecy and, and from history what had taken place. The 10 days was metaphorical about persecution. Waves, there are 10 waves of persecution that would happen uh, to the church in Smyrna. And at this time, and at the time uh, that the persecution were at their full orb, the leader of the church, the pastor, the bishop of the era of the church of Smyrna, was a man who had been discipled directly by the Apostle John. He would go to the regular Bible studies, John would teach him, instruct him, raise him up, a man named Polycarp. With the time of the wave of persecution, was 80 years old, was renowned for his humility, his wisdom, and his passion for the Lord. And those who were to do the church in and oppress it realized that one of the surest ways of, of, of uh, diminishing the church was to rid the church of the one who was their teacher, their example, their model. And so orders were given that they should go get Polycarp and seize him. And if he did not recant and bow down before the emperor, uh, that he was to be killed. 
Some of the followers in the church told Polycarp, you need to go in hiding. And Polycarp said, no, I need to be right here, being strong, being faithful. But they convinced him to go into hiding, that they needed him, needed his teaching, needed his wisdom, needed his leadership. And so he went into hiding at a home of a friend just outside of the city. It wasn't long before the authorities found out where he was. Somebody had squealed on him. And so one morning, the authorities showed up at the door of the house where he was staying. And Polycarp, knowing they were down there, didn't run, but he came down and had breakfast with them. Then he asked the leader of the soldiers that came if they would give him time to go pray. And they said, that's fine. And so he went upstairs. He prayed for time, and he came back down with them. They took him into the center of the town, and they told him that he either needs to repent or recant and to bow down before the emperor or he would be killed and polycarp's response was all of my 80 years he has been faithful to me shall i now at this moment become faithless to him and so they tied him to the stake to a stake surrounded it with wood poured oil on the wood and gave him another opportunity to recant and he refused and so they lit the wood and a wind came and blew out the fire so they went back and they tried and they finally were able to light the wood. And as it was burning, where people would expect the smell of burning flesh, what witnesses testified is they smelled the fragrant aroma, that like myrrh. A beautiful aroma, not only to the Lord, but to all who were there, believer and unbeliever alike, were smelling this fragrant aroma. And still he wasn't dying. Tired of waiting, one of the soldiers went to grabbed the knife, went up into the flame, reached through the flame, and slit Polycarp's throat. And as it hit the, hit the, um, as the, uh, the blood began to spew out and extinguished the flames. In his last breath, what Polycarp testified to all who would listen is that it is the blood that extinguishes the flame for those who remain faithful. A beautiful example the power of the gospel in the life of one who became more famous and more influential in his death than he was in his life. I hope you don't have to endure that. I really hope I don't have to endure that. But you are experiencing suffering. Some of you I know what it is. Some of you we haven't spoken about it. But you are experiencing suffering, and the call to your life is to simply be faithful and to know the gospel. Remind yourself that sometimes we experience prosperity, sometimes it's persecution. It just depends on the context of where we live. Neither are an indication of God's favor. Christ is the indication of God's favor. And he has promised that those who are in him, he will always supply the peace and the grace that you need not only to endure, but to overcome in him. And the promise Jesus makes to us in this is very simple. In verse 11, he said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It is a promise that that which we cling for and long for now, the comfort that I crave, is promised in the end. We will experience it at times, and hopefully in abundance in this life. But that is not our goal, to cling for comfort, to live. The church's mission is not to preserve certain standard of living in this culture so that we can have comfort. That is a distortion of what 
the American dream, but unfortunately that's what the American dream has degenerated into, and it is certainly not what the church is about. Whether in plenty or in need, whether in prosperity or persecution, we are called to remain faithful, and our lives will produce a fragrant aroma to the Lord that we can have the goal of our lives, that we bring pleasure to him, we become more like him, and that we will be delivered to him. It's the promise to you that whatever you're experiencing is not for nothing. Trust, believe, and experience from him a peace that makes no sense. Paul says, it's, or the scripture tells us it's peace that goes beyond understanding. It, means it makes no sense, but it's real. Experience his peace when you see the one who's understood, who has loved you and given himself for you. I'm deeply encouraged that the Lord both acknowledges our suffering and reveals himself over our pain. Because Jesus has come to set us free of our fear. And our slavery. For all who will believe in him. Let me pray. Father, we, we pray that you would bless us. You have blessed us in Christ, but so often we needlessly live in anxiety. Not that circumstances don't encourage it or even seem to warrant it. But I pray that you would take us deeper into the understanding of your great love and what you are doing in us, that we might understand that even in our sufferings, you are making us what we want to be. And in our sufferings, we can bring pleasure to you. Not that you delight in suffering, but that you see the character and the perseverance developing. By your Spirit, point that out to us as well. That we may know that while things are not the way they are supposed to be in this world now, they will be one day. That while we have tastes of those today, even in the midst of the suffering that exists, help us to long for that which is coming all the more. Not to be over-anxious, not to run in fear, but to stand firm and to look forward to the hope that is assured. Bless us, Father, we pray that we may not only know this, but feel this truth in our lives. Pray in Christ, who is the guarantee of that promise. Amen.